Good morning again. We're going to turn to 1 Samuel 24. So if you brought your Bible, you want to look it up on your phone, or we'll put it on the screen. Uh, we're walking through the story of 1 Samuel. We're getting closer to the end one of these days. Um, yeah, that is funny, isn't it? We'll take a break for December for Advent, so it's really going to make it a little bit longer. But hopefully you've been challenged and encouraged uh, through this series. I know I've been personally, pastorally, really in really enjoying this, this study, First uh, Samuel 24. And you'll see right from the get-go, we're back in a cave. I mean, you're like, wait a minute, what's happening? Weren't we just in a cave just a few chapters ago? Yes. First Samuel 22, cave Adullam. That's where, that's where David was. But now we're back in a new cave, full circle, the cave of Engedi. David is still running. I'm running out of cave illustrations. I don't know what else to tell you, but this is, the, this is the path that David has been on from Gath to the castle in Moab, from the forest to the wilderness to the desert, from cave, full circle. He is back in a cave. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of caves. Maybe you enjoy caves or spelunking or exploring. Maybe you despise caves, uh, dark cold. I remember one of the things I think of with caves was this one cave that we would go to in West Virginia uh, that was filled with cave spiders is what they were called. That sounds enjoyable, doesn't it? And they said, no, no, don't even worry about the cave spiders. I'm like, I've never even heard that. Like, what is that? They said, just don't touch them and you'll be okay. And I'm like, I'm crawling on the ground, touching everything, but okay, thank you. Um, but this cave this morning was not a cave with cave spiders. What's interesting about the cave of Engedi is, is that we actually know, for the most part, where this is. That we can locate it on a map, that if you were to go to Israel today, that we would be able to locate at least the general vicinity of where this cave is. It's on the west coast of the Dead Sea. Israel, as you know, it's a it's desert-like, it's brown, it's, a lot of it is, seems dead, but when you get to the coast of the Dead Sea, the elevation drops, and it kind of works its way slowly to the, to the, to the water, and, but because of the water, and because of the springs that kind of go up into these mountain areas, there's a lot of green. There's vegetation, and trees, and waterfalls, and so I bet that I could convince you to, to camp in this cave of Engedi. And what, if you were to go, they, they supposedly have located this cave from, from 1 Samuel 24. They probably don't really know, but we at least have an idea. And then as I was researching about traveling to Engedi, I saw that they have a marathon coming up in a couple of months. And so I told Ashley last service in the middle of the service that I booked our tickets. We're going to Engedi. No, I didn't do that, but we could. But I think the point is to see that there's something really beautiful about this cave that David would have been in in 1 Samuel 24. And so I think it's helpful for us to kind of keep that in our mind as we're studying 1 Samuel 24. That the cave for David here is not his grave. It's not this dark, damp location with cave spiders and, and God is slowly putting an end to David. But that's not what God is doing. Instead, this cave is going to be David's classroom. 
But this little slice of paradise, this little oasis, God is using it to teach him and to prepare him and to shape him. That we're going to see that this moment here in 1 Samuel 24, that, that God is forging in the life of David what it means to be a king who follows after God. And so this is what we see. This is more of a classroom than a grave. David is being shaped. He's being formed. He's learning how to be a king with character. And so this morning, I think we would do well, all of us, to join David in this classroom and to learn the lessons that God is teaching him here. And so we'll read the whole text this morning, and then we'll pray. So when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and he did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into, the hand, into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good, for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. 
Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes, you'd open up our hearts, that you would open our minds to see and to be transformed by your glory, by your grace, and by your gospel this morning. Help us, allow us to see and to think and to consider the truth that is in front of us today. Convict and encourage and empower us to be all that you've called us to be in your son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, God, we pray that by your word and through your spirit and in your son and for your glory, that you would work all these things. Amen. Last week we saw in chapter 23 that kind of the main point of the message was God helps David in a time of need. Maybe you can remember How does God help us? How does God help us when we are in need? How did he help David? By his word. How many times in chapter 23 did David inquire of the Lord and God responded with his spoken word? God helped David through the strengthening power of friendship with Jonathan. He helped David. If you remember that last scene in chapter 23, David is on the mountain And right before Saul comes over the peak and sees David and his men, what happens? He gets a report. The Philistines are attacking Israel. You need to leave. And right at the last moment, just in the nick of time, God delivers David from evil by diverting Saul to another battle. And so you would think, well, maybe now David gets a little bit of a break from this chase. I mean, this cat and mouse chase that we've been following for the last, seems like chapter after chapter, like you're, you think when Saul leaves to go fight that David's going to get a little, little time off here at this oasis of En a little vacation, a little rest. But we see pretty quickly in chapter 24 that it doesn't last long. Like the story doesn't take a different direction for very long. Just in a few verses, in a blink of an eye, the Philistine battle is over. The same pesky informant that's been divulging information all through the story, whoever he is, tells Saul pretty quickly where David is, where he is in Engedi, And Saul, in just a matter of moments after this battle, is back on the chase. And he is obsessed and he is relentless He is fully focused with this 3,000 men, how he can capture and kill David. And so really, the story just continues where we've been all along. Saul continues to pursue David. And then we get to verse 3, and we get a detail that my boys live for. It's not a detail that is typical in the narrative, keeps the little guys fully focused and laughing Um, But what do we have in verse 3? Saul came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. It's like, what? Why are we being told this? My boys just laughed so hard at this. What is happening? Why is this being included? The word is, the literal word for relieved himself is he covered his feet. He He dropped 
his britches, as my granddad would say, and he is there completely vulnerable, completely vulnerable. No bodyguard, no weapons, no, he can't run, he's completely surrounded. I mean, he is in the cave, that the, the cave just happens to be in the cave that David and his 400 men are in. And, and listen, Saul is completely vulnerable in every possible way. And so kind of picturing this, it's not hard to imagine the clamoring of David's 400 men. Look at what they say. Verse 4, the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. I mean, they break out into song. I think of the song. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. God told you this, and now it is time for you and to go get what God has promised you. So they read the room. They interpret the circumstances. This is the providence of God, as we would say in kind of how we talk about God's providence today, we would say, God has opened up a door for them. I mean, how else do you explain all of this happening? You've got God's word. You've got circumstances. This is the providence of God. And so you can hear these men, not shouting, whispering to David, avenge for yourself, God's people. Here is the, the man who marched into Nob and slaughtered the priests and their families. Avenge the blood of God's people. Rain down, David, rain down God's judgment on, this, on the wickedness of Saul. Seize the throne, David. Seize it. Take it. Grab it. God has promised you the throne. And now look at the circumstances. Now is for you the time to take what God has said is rightfully yours. And at first it appears that this, this is what David's going to do. This is what the men are whispering to him. Verse 4, David arose and he stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. What? Like, you can almost picture these men in the cave just, just gasping. You did what, David? You cut off his robe? Like, you had lots of options on how to end this, and you cut off his robe. You took your sword, and you cut a nice little square off the corner of his robe. What are you thinking, David? Why would you do this? Not only that. Not only did he not do what they wanted him to do or thought he should do or thought God was leading him to do, David comes back and he is completely convicted over the small thing he has done. Look at what David says in verse 5. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So to understand, why is, why is David so sensitive? Why is he so broken over such a small thing? Well, I think if we kind of step back and kind of 
reconsider the significance of the robe, I think it's possible for us to kind of see why David shouldn't have killed Saul. And so the robe was a picture all through the book of 1 Samuel of God's authority and God's power and God's leadership. And so back in chapter 2, little Samuel, as a little boy, his mom would put together and knit him these little robes as he grew up. The text tells us that. And then when Samuel anointed Saul to be king early in the story, what was given to Saul? He was given the robe, the power and the authority to lead the people of God. But what happened when Saul was disobedient? In chapter 15, he didn't follow God. He wasn't a man after God's own heart. Samuel confronted him and he told him, God has left you. God has left you. You are no longer walking with God. You are You are not a man after God's own heart. You are a man who is hungry for power and control. And as Samuel confronts Saul, Saul says, no, no. He false repentance, if you remember in chapter 15. And and he says to Samuel, actually, I need you to come with me. Stand before Israel with me. And Samuel says, I will not go back with you, and I will not stand before Israel with you. And as he turns to leave, what does Saul grab? He grabs his robe, and he tears it. And Samuel turns to him and says, that's a picture of what God's doing with the kingdom from your grasp. And then we get with Jonathan in chapter 18, where he's seeing all this happening, and he realizes the next in line for the throne to be king is a man after God's own heart, and it's not my dad, and it's not me. There was a man who killed the mighty Goliath, who had courage and faith and integrity. It's David. And so he comes to David in chapter 18. Remember that scene where he takes off his robe and he relinquishes his power. He he says no to himself. And he says, you are the rightful king. Here is my robe. And so you take all that and then you come back to the cave in chapter 24. What's happening here with David? David cuts off a little piece. He sneaks up on him and he takes his sword and he cuts the robe as if to say, I will take God's power from you, God's authority from you. I will take what is mine. And the moment he does this, the moment it happens, David is struck in the heart. He is convicted. I'm not supposed to do this. This is, not, this is not what I'm supposed to do. This isn't the will of God. This isn't the direction of God. This isn't the providence of God. And then if you kind of go back to the men, his 400 men in the cave, God never said what they said he said. You go and look at the quote where they say, well, take what's yours, David. God's going to give it to you. You take it. Like you go back through the story. No, actually, he, we don't have record that he ever said that. And all of a sudden, David is struck with this realization. This isn't isn't providence. This isn't an open door. This is temptation. This is a temptation. Saul is anointed by God. What am I supposed to do in this moment in the cave with Saul right in front of me? Psalm 105.15. Don't raise your hand against Saul, against God's anointed. Exodus 19, do not murder. 
What is David's learning in this classroom of the cave? He is learning how to wait. He would do well to learn to wait on God. Don't murder. Honor the anointed. Wait for God to bring about his will, his way. David, he's learning. God doesn't need me to go and to take and to take and to grab and to, and to do it in my own way and in my own power. God started this whole thing. Now I'm being taught that God's going to finish it, and he doesn't need you to murder to get there. And so what we see here in this classroom, that, that this character that God is forging into David about waiting and about obedience and about temptation, and it just made me think, as I was just kind of studying, it just made me realize how often we are like the 400 men in the cave. How, how good we are, probably good's not the right word, how crafty we are at justifying opportunities to be open doors and not temptation. How we can justify sinful, wrong choices by telling ourselves lies or making excuses because this is what the men were doing. This is God's word. This is his providence. Now is the time when in reality it was sin. It was murder. It was not being impatient and not waiting for God. And it's like, we do this. We justify our sin. We explain and make, help ourselves to feel better by explaining away our sin. I mean, I see it in our kids, all kids, right? When you get caught, what did, what did kids do? They explain or blame or give reasons why they hit this person or took this or did this. I mean, that's our first reaction is, I will explain and excuse and justify my sin. So this morning, I think it's good to get some clarity that though we justify our sin, our safe sins, our sins that we kind of hold on to, that we need to have the light pierce the darkness of our sin, that there's no justification for looking at pornography. There's none. And we do this. Well, my marriage is, is a wreck, and, and if you just knew the specifics of my situation, and God's gracious, and it's okay, or I'm single, I'm single, and this is just how God made me, and, and it's not that big of a deal. Like, we explain and justify our sin just like the men in the cave did. Or there's no, there's no justification for being critical with your words about somebody else behind their back. The Bible has a word for this, and it's gossip. Yet we, we just, we cover it up. Well, I'm just, I'm trying to help. I'm trying to help, and and I care about this person, and you know, we can pray for them, or we, this is for their good. I'm just a talkative person. It's just my personality, and I just needed someone to vent with. Like, we, we justify our sins, our safe sins, by making excuses, and this is what the men in the cave were doing. But listen, there's, there's no justification for our sin, for your impatience, for your anger, For your anxiety and your laziness, gluttony or drunkenness or racism, dishonoring those in authority, you name the sin, we justify our sin. And look, 
This is what the men in the cave were doing. They were justifying murder. Let's kill the man who's been after us. And they have all these reasons. But my prayer for, for me and for you is that God would strike our hearts like he struck David's. Strike our hearts. Open our eyes to see the darkness of our sin, to see our sin, so that we would be forged into people like the king, who are pure, who are slow to speak. Not talking about people behind their backs, that we're slow to speak, that we're not meddling in other people's affairs all the time, that we'd be patient and servant-hearted and self-controlled, that we'd pray for the people in authority over us, that we would pray for them more than we would speak down upon them, just like we're told in Scripture. And so I think it's a, a, a worthwhile prayer, and we'll have a chance to do that this morning, to pray something like this. Lord, convict me of my sin and show it to me. Show it to me. Show me where I am deceived, where I am living in sin and excusing it, that I may walk in the, in the light of the gospel of grace. And then we get to verse 8, and it, get, it just gets crazier from here. David does something crazy. He runs out of the cave to the, to the men, the 3,000 men that are trying to kill him. It's like, David, what are you? It's like, I feel like I'm talking to my child. What are you thinking? What are you doing, David? These men are trying. You can just, the men and the, his 400 men are, are, had to be thinking this. David, you don't kill Saul, but you think it's a really good idea. Run out of the cave and let's have a conversation with the men after you let Saul go about what Saul is doing. I mean, this doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface. But he, has, he confronts Saul, and he confronts the men, and he says to them, why? Why are you listening? He's talking to Saul. Why are you listening to the lies that, that the men are telling you? So almost identical to what just happened to him in the cave, they're telling him things to do something that he shouldn't do. He, he turns to Saul and says, why are you listening to your men? I'm not trying to kill you. Look, I have a corner of your rope. If I wanted to kill you, I could have. But I am here to honor you, and I am here to respect you, and I'm here to follow you because you are God's anointed. And then he says in verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. And may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. I mean, what a lesson to learn in the classroom. I am not in charge. And God does not need me to accomplish his purpose in this situation. God does not need me to murder. God is the avenger. I am not the avenger. God is the judge. I am not the judge. It's this hands-off understanding of it. Like, God doesn't need me. He is going to finish what he started. The end doesn't justify the means to get there. Right? That's the lesson that David is, is learning. The end is a good thing. Me, David, being king and leading, shepherding the people to God, that is a great thing. 
but the means by which you get there, David, it really does matter. It really does matter. God's will done God's way. And it's important. And so how, but how does he do this? Like where, where does this come from with David, where he is able to walk out of the cave, which is crazy, crazy talk, and have a conversation with Saul and pretty much say, you, you attack me and I'm not going to attack you. You're my enemy, but I will spare you. And he's essentially saying, I will, I will respect you and I will be kind to you. And he doesn't say it here explicitly, but we'll see it later in the story. I love you, Saul. I honor you, Saul. You are anointed. How does he do this? Well, I think verse 13 gives us a little hint of how it's possible that David's behavior could be this radical. He says, out of the wickedness, out of the wicked comes wickedness. This is a principle, and he's, he's very smart with how he talks to Saul. He doesn't say, Saul, you are wicked, and from your wicked heart, you are behaving wickedness. He quotes it as a proverb, but he's saying, this is how we can explain our behavior. It's a principle that Jesus taught. Good trees produce good fruit. This is Matthew 12, 33 through 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's not just that, Saul, you are wicked because you're doing wicked things. You're trying to attack me. You're killing people. It's your wickedness springs from, flowers from the heart that is wicked. And the same is true for goodness. Out of my goodness, as David, my goodness comes from a heart that is good. It isn't behavior or good deeds. It's an overflow of a good heart. And really, this is a small picture of the gospel, of the message, the essence of Christianity. That it's not, it's Christianity is not about doing good things. Not, it's not, that's not how we define our Christianity, by giving and going to church and volunteering and being a good parent or a good husband. Uh, that, that's not the core of Christianity. How can I say that? Because if it was, if it was, the core was doing good things, being a nice person, it, I can say that because if that was, we would all utterly fail at keeping the core of Christianity. This, this is the perfect example of how we would feel. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And if, it, if Christianity was just being a good person, doing a good thing, we get to a passage like this and what do we all say? That's crazy. That's, that's literally crazy. I can't do it. I can't do that. I can try. I can try to be a good person. I can give some money, and I can go attend this. But when it comes to love your enemy and pray for them, I fail. But we realize this isn't the essence of Christianity. The essence is out of wicked comes wickedness. Out of goodness comes good behavior. This is why Jesus talks about conversion all through the New Testament, it's not just turning over a new leaf, working hard to be a good person. How does Jesus talk about conversion? It's transformation. 
That's Romans 12. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does he talk about the essence of Christianity? Be born again. The only way you're ever going to put it all together is you are reborn. New life. It's the prophecy in Ezekiel 36. It's heart surgery. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit and remove the heart of stone. That This is the essence of Christianity. Not that we can we can't do and do and be good and do the right things and stop doing these things. The only way that we can be like David in the cave is if out of the goodness of the heart that God has given us overflows goodness. Otherwise, it's impossible and we will, we will fail. I was reading the biography on Augustine this week. And here, here's an I mean, incredible story of a man who's like, who's like one of the most important theologians that we have. So you kind of go into a biography, kind of holding him high, but then you start to read his story, and you're like, he wasn't saved until he was in his 30s, okay? But, but before he was saved, in his 30s, he battled with this deep bondage to sexual sin, that he had a, a concubine and a kid that he never married, that he sent, away, he sent back to Africa. He had mistresses, but he had this just constant battle with lust and sexual sin. And then it, in, the, in the story, it gives his words for his conversion. And you, again, you talk about, it's not just Augustine working hard to do the right thing and not do the right thing. What, how do we explain the behavior of David? It's through transformation. Here's what Augustine says. He said, I flung myself down beneath a fig tree, and I gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying. How long shall I go on saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? And all at once, I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again, it repeated the refrain, take it and read, take it and read. And this I looked up thinking, Hard, whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant these words, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of Scripture and read the first passage which my eyes should fall upon. So I hurried back to the place where Olympias was sitting. I seized the book of Paul's epistles, and I opened it. And in silence, I read the first passage on, why my, on where my eyes fell. Not in reveling in drunkenness, not in lust, not in quarrels or rivalries. Rather, arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. Romans 13, 13 through 14. And I had no wish to read any more. No, no need to do so for in an instant. As I came to the end of the sentence, it was though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt dispelled. How can he, and the rest of his story, he, he was done with lust, and he was done with sexual sin, and when the light and the gospel of grace flooded his heart, it empowered him out of that goodness of his grace to, to live in goodness. How is David able to march out of the cave and tell Saul I will honor and respect you as God anointed. It's because he has seen, he has seen the king, the king of kings, the judge and the avenger, the shepherd and the father. And it changes, it changes how he can react to the situation. 
And then we look at how, we'll close with this quickly. When we do this, when we live out of this overflow of what God has done for us and what we do and in what we, we don't do, the, the world literally is turned upside down. This is what happens to Saul. Just verse 19, this question. This Saul, Saul, who just must be dumbfounded. Dumbfounded. that how, how could he do this? He says, for if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? No. That's the answer. When you find your enemy, especially in this situation, you kill him. How is it possible, David? How is it possible that you would not kill me? And the answer is, and David doesn't say it, but it is implied. The answer is, I, I can spare my enemy because I have been spared by God. That I come before God and I come before him as the enemy. That God is holy and just and almighty and he is the avenging king and he looks down on me, David, and he says, in, in my love and in my forgiveness, you go free. And for us today, how, how can we be empowered to love our enemies and pray for our enemies and be pure and be kind and to be patient? How is it possible? It's not leave here and try really hard. No, the answer is recognize you have been spared by a just king. That in, in Christ, the king on the cross, you have been spared and you have been given mercy and forgiveness and life and a fresh start. And we can overflow out of that, that we can leave here. And, and it's not easy, but loving our enemies is possible. It is possible. It's possible that when we rest in and consider the grace of Jesus, we can live for him. And so my, my hope this morning is that we would, in the cave, that we would see our sin, that we would see it, that light would penetrate the darkness, and that our sin would be uncovered, our excuses would be uncovered, our justification would be uncovered, and that when we walk out of that cave, that we don't walk out burdened with guilt, and we don't walk out just ashamed that we see our sin, but when we walk out of the cave, we come out in this deep worship of the king who went to the cross to forgive us of that sin that we've discovered. And as we recognize our sin and we recognize our forgiveness and our new life and we live and we walk and we interact with people, that people would see us and see our compassion and our kindness and our patience and say, you follow a different king than I know and that we can share the hope of the gospel. And so now, this morning, I want to give you a few minutes as we close, spend a few minutes confessing in the cave. Pray and ask God to show you your sin. And when you see it, confess like David. Confess. And then we will close with a song about boasting in the work and the cross of Christ. So go ahead, spend a few minutes and pray. And then we'll close with a song.